millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the ancient hominins in your DNA, and the origin of an unusual object at the edge of the solar system. I'm Shamni Bandel. And I'm Nick Howe. First up on the show, how the genomes of modern humans can tell us about our past. You're probably a little bit Neanderthal. Once upon a time, you may have considered that an insult. But these days, a lot of people are familiar with the idea that All humans outside of Africa can trace a little bit of their DNA, around 2%, to these now extinct hominins. And scientists are able to take advantage of that fact to learn more about Neanderthals. And one way you can do that is you can sequence a lot of modern humans. And because our ancestors, when they left Africa, met and exchanged with these uh, Neanderthals, looking at a lot of samples, you can actually reconstruct what the Neanderthal population looked like. This is Lauritz Skov, a bioinformatician with an interest in ancient hominins. This week in Nature, to get a better understanding of our Neanderthal cousins, he and his colleagues have been looking at genomic data from over 27,000 modern-day Icelanders. The samples were collected by the collaborators, a company called Decode. So how do you use modern DNA to work out what Neanderthals were like? Well, first, you have to find the ancient bits of DNA hidden in our genomes. To do that, you could start with the genome sequences of ancient hominins, and then match them up with the sequences of modern humans. But this assumes that any DNA that doesn't match isn't ancient, which may not be the case. Besides, good quality ancient genomes are, let's face it, pretty hard to come by. So, Lauritz used a different strategy. What we do here is that we say we don't use any Neanderthal Denisovet genomes, but we use the expectations that we have about what these fragments would look like. Like one, they're very different from other human fragments, and and two, they should be fairly long. By looking for these characteristics, Lauritz could identify what regions of the DNA were likely from an ancient hominin. Then he could go about working out where they were from by finding similarities with existing ancient genomes. So we actually learned quite a few things from sequencing this many individuals. One, we do find Neanderthal fragments, but we also surprisingly found Denisovan fragments. Around 3% of all the ancient parts of the genome appeared to be Denisovan in origin. 
the Denisovans and other branch of ancient hominins are generally considered to have lived in Asia, compared to the more Eurocentric Neanderthals. In fact, Denisovan remains have only been discovered in Siberia and the Tibetan Plateau, so you might wonder how Denisovan DNA ended up in modern-day Icelanders. Well, John Capra, a computational geneticist who wasn't associated with this work, was intrigued by this finding, but he wasn't especially surprised. Over the past couple of years, there have been enough uh, studies showing that these archaic groups moved around quite a bit, and that there were other events of interbreeding, for example, between uh, Neanderthals and Denisovans and other places. So it's, it's, it's not so surprising to me that uh, we're seeing here the, the potential after effects of another such um, interbreeding event. It appears that ancient hominins quite readily, well, uh, spread their genes around. But John says that this study shows the strongest evidence so far that Denisovan DNA is in fact in Europeans. For Lauritz, he thinks that it might show that ancient humans were spread a lot more widely than previously thought. So there might have been an Anisal population in the Middle East somewhere when Denisovas came over, or, which is even perhaps even more interesting, like there could have been a Denisova-like population all the way in the Middle East, which greatly expands the range where we think Denisovans lived. Lauritz and his colleagues didn't want to just use these samples to learn about ancient hominins. They also wanted to ask how ancient bits of DNA, Neanderthal or otherwise, might be impacting modern humans. We thought there would actually be quite a significant amount of Neanderthal genes that did something. But it turns out that most DNA that we got from Neanderthals doesn't have a huge effect. Now, Laritz did find some effects, but according to their analysis, they were very small. John isn't so sure, though. What researchers are looking for is associations between gene variants and physical traits. And John thinks that the criteria Laritz used to determine those associations were too strict. Also, John's latest research suggests that, due to human interbreeding, these associations may not be direct. We discovered an interesting pattern that, in many cases, the Neanderthal variant was not causing the association but other variants that came into modern human populations through interbreeding, but had actually been present in an ancestral population and then lost in human populations, were causing the association. And so it's, it's sort of a complex thing where interbreeding with Neanderthals introduced these causal genetic variants, but those genetic variants were not created in Neanderthals. They were present in a population that was ancestral to both Neanderthals and modern humans. And the Neanderthals gave them back. Whether or not these ancient genes are having an effect on modern humans, Lauritz could still use them to gain insights about what Neanderthals themselves were like. The type of mutations that Neanderthal fragments have compared to human fragments is different. And these type of differences you can actually explain by a difference in generation time in Neanderthals. So in this case, on average, the mothers were older and the fathers were younger compared to modern humans. Lauritz hopes that many more insights will come out of this huge data set, and he's excited for new archaeological finds to help us build a better picture of human history, Homo sapiens and otherwise. As what's clear to both Lauritz and John is that human history is far from straightforward.
like we, we tend to think of populations that being separate, like Neanderthals leave Africa and then Neanderthals are in Europe, the Nisubans are in Asia, humans are in Africa, and there's no mixing between these populations. But that certainly seems not to be true. We already know of Neanderthals and humans meeting, of course, but now there's also Denisovan meeting with modern-day non-Africans. So in that sense, and I actually think that's, that's, that's quite nice, that human evolutionary history is much more complicated than we previously thought. That was Lauritz Skov from the University of Aarhus in Denmark and the Max Planck Institute in Germany. You also heard from John Capra from Vanderbilt University in the US. Lauritz's paper is out now and there's a link to that in the show notes. Later on, we'll be finding out about paired asteroids at the edge of the solar system. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read to you this week by Dan Fox. A little perfume or aftershave might be the finishing touch you apply as you get ready for a hot date. But maybe that isn't limited to humans, as a team of researchers from Japan have found that lemurs also up their smell game to attract mates. Male lemurs produce a floral scent from glands on their wrists that they use to attract females. And much like a lefario applying cologne, the lemurs want to make sure any prospective mates smelt them coming, so they rub their scent glands over their tails to waft the fragrance even further. The scent was made up of three pheromones, compounds that animals emit to communicate with each other. As it got closer to mating season, the levels of the pheromones emitted from their scent glands increased, changing their aroma from bitter and leathery to floral and fruity. Find that fragrant research over at Current Biology. What could we learn about you from the objects you've lost on long journeys? Depending on what you take with you, perhaps not much, but we might at the very least get an idea of what route you are travelling. The same idea has allowed researchers to reveal an ancient Viking trade route by uncovering a trove of artefacts from a glacier. A team from the UK collected hundreds of artefacts, including horseshoes, arrows and walking sticks, from the receding ice patch at Lendbreen Glacier in the mountains of southern Norway. By dating 60 of these objects... The team determined that Lendbreen Pass was used for both local travel and long-distance trading from around 300 to 1000 AD. Their findings suggest that travellers used the pass in spring and early summer when thick snow would have made the rocky terrain easier to navigate with pack horses. After 1000 AD, traffic started to decline as economic changes, colder winters and the bubonic plague took their toll pick up that trail over at antiquity. An otherwise unremarkable thunderstorm in 2018 may have yielded the largest hailstones ever recorded, with some as big as footballs. Researchers from Pennsylvania State University collected photographs, videos and stories from residents of Cordoba province in Argentina where the storm struck. The biggest hailstone recorded measured an estimated 18.8 to 23.7 centimetres wide, potentially bigger than the current record holder, a 20 centimetre wide hailstone that fell in South Dakota in 2010. The scientists propose a new classification for hail larger than 15 centimetres in diameter, gargantuan hail. 
But despite the size of the hailstones, weather radar failed to detect any reason for this storm to produce such extreme precipitation. The researchers suggest that meteorologists should work closely with the public to document future cases of gargantuan hail in order to understand the conditions that lead to it. Avoid any hailstones by staying inside while you read that paper in full at Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. In 2006, the New Horizons spacecraft left Earth on its mission to explore what was then the furthest planet in our solar system, Pluto. By the time it arrived nine years later, Pluto had been demoted to a dwarf planet. Nevertheless, the space probe successfully completed its flyby, gathering a wealth of data and some incredible images of the dwarf's surface. But the mission wasn't over yet. The spacecraft's next target was a strange-looking object a billion miles from Pluto, which would turn out to have some rather unusual properties. This week in Nature, researchers have modelled how this object, called Arakoth, might have formed. Anand Jagatia investigates. On the 1st of January last year, New Horizons flew past Arakoth, the most distant object ever visited by a spacecraft. Arakoth is an object in what is known as the Kuiper Belt, beyond the orbit of Neptune. And uh, in 2014, it seemed like that Arakoth had really uh, a unique shape. Mainly, it looks like a snowman. This is Yevgeny Grishin, a PhD student at the Technion in Israel. And he's right, Arakoth really does look like the head and body of a space snowman. It's made up of two lobes, one bigger and one smaller, connected by a narrow neck. Researchers think that Arrowcoth is a contact binary. It was made from two separate objects rotating around each other in a binary system, which eventually moved closer together until they touched. The data that New Horizons gathered about Arrowcoth in 2019 confirmed that its shape wasn't the only unusual thing about it. Arrowcoth completes a revolution around its axis roughly once per 16 hours. And that surprisingly is slow, because usually other similar objects closer in the asteroid belt, they actually tend to rotate much, much faster. The other strange thing about Arrokoth is the orientation of its spin. As it orbits the sun, Arrokoth rotates as if the snowman is doing cartwheels in the snow, like the propeller on the front of an old aeroplane. This is odd because if it was formed from two bodies that slowly spiralled in towards each other, losing energy because of the friction with gas and dust in between them, then we'd expect Arakoth to spin on its axis much more quickly and in a different orientation, more like the propeller on top of a helicopter. So how did Arakoth form? To work it out, Yevgeny and colleagues have used simulations of a three-body system. A familiar example of this would be the Earth, Moon and Sun. The Earth and the Moon rotate around each other while both of them orbit the Sun. We know that uh, the orbital plane of the Moon is roughly misaligned by 5 degrees compared to the orbital plane of the Earth and Sun. And the orbit of the Moon seems to be pretty stable, right? Instead, if the angle between these two planes would have been 90 degrees and not 5 degrees, actually because of the perturbations induced by the Sun, the moon who would have collided with the Earth a long time ago. Simulating this process with the two parents of Arrokoth, the team showed that if they were rotating around each other in a plane that was misaligned enough from their orbit around the sun, the sun's gravitational pull could eventually lead to a collision between them, producing an object that rotates like Arrokoth. 
and the relatively small size of the two parents would have helped them merge into a celestial snowman. The collision looks look to be relatively gentle, so in this case, the collision usually happens on a velocity which is very close to the escape velocity. So for these bodies, these bodies are relatively small. The larger one is roughly the side of London, probably smaller. And uh, the escape velocity from, from the surface is roughly a few meters, I think four meters per second. So it's really a, a very slow jogging. The small mass means that the gravity at play is pretty weak. So the two bodies that formed Arakoth were able to collide relatively gently and fuse together rather than smashing into each other and breaking apart. The simulations also showed that the angle of impact is important for Arakoth's formation. What's also important is the, what we call the impact parameter or the impact angle. In this case, you, you can imagine that the collision in the two extremes, it could either happen head on or you can have a, almost like an edge on collision or some kind of a grazing collision. And the collisions that, that are more head on, they generate much less of the spin period. Arrokoth has a slow rotation on its axis, so it's this latter, more head-on collision that would have formed it. Arrokoth is the first confirmed contact binary that researchers have observed, but they think there could be many more lurking in the Kuiper Belt and beyond. So this process could be used to explain the formation of other objects in the solar system too, including what New Horizons set out to explore in the first place, Pluto and its moon, Charon. What's weird is that that Charon is pretty close to, to Pluto, they're what's, what's called tidally locked, meaning that the Plutonians will see only one side of Charon. It's like we see only one side of the moon. It's really the same. Also, the, the angle between the, the orbit of Pluto and Charon and the orbit of Pluto around the sun is almost 120 degrees. It's really puzzling how we could have formed the system. And uh, we really believe that probably this, the Pluto-Charon system was also formed by some kind of collision, maybe on some similar mechanism. They will not become a contact binary like Arakov, but they will probably have some, have some bouncing off and will be stuck eventually. That was Evgeny Grishin from Technion in Israel. You can find Evgeny's paper over at nature.com and we'll put a link in the show notes. Finally on the show, you might be familiar with the Nature Briefing, Nature's daily or weekly pick of science news and stories delivered directly to your inbox. Well, Shamani and I have been scouring it to bring you some non-corona science news. Shamani, what's caught your eye this week? So the story I looked at is about the universe being lopsided. That's how Scientific American (laughs) describes it anyway. Um, And what they're talking about is lopsided in the rate of it expanding. Um, So you you know the cosmic microwave background radiation? Yeah, yeah. So at the Big Bang you got this radiation, we can still see it today, and we can see that it's really even. So the idea is that it kind of shows that the universe is expanding all over at an equal rate. But this story from, this is a paper in Astronomy and Astrophysics, looks at particular galactic clusters, and um, using a particular measurement of their luminosity, says actually these ones are less bright than they should be, and those ones are more bright than they should be, and therefore it kind of could be because that bit of the universe is expanding faster and this bit is expanding slower, which would be really weird. So so in this case, it's just the fact that some stars are dimmer than others and some are brighter than they should be if the universe was expanding evenly. Yeah, exactly. 
this definitely hasn't confirmed that the universe isn't expanding evenly. If that's true, that will be like a major big deal. So this is like one hint of it. And there have been other studies that have also found hints, but then there have been other studies that are like, no, definitely not. It's all like super equal. So this is an ongoing debate, but um, that was the that was the latest headline that I thought was peculiar. And what story did you pick from the briefing? So... You know water, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sort of an important thing. Uh, how do I put this? Water is, like, well weird. So most liquids have pretty consistent properties, but water just really doesn't. It is really unusual compared to every other liquid. So, for example, when you cool things down, typically liquids become more dense. And that happens with water as well, up to a point, to around four degrees. But then after that, it actually becomes less dense. And that's why things like ice floats. But I've heard about this in school, and I thought all water's sort of slightly unusual chemical properties. It's all because it's got hydrogen bonding, which other liquids don't have. Yeah, and that's what I thought as well. And it's what a lot of chemists still think. But there are a group of chemists that are increasingly starting to think that actually water isn't just one liquid, it's made of two separate states of the same liquid that sort of intermix and join together to make this really weird properties that water has. How does that even make sense? I do not understand that. So basically, some chemists are saying that there is a bit of evidence to suggest that water has a low-density state and a high-density state. And these two states are in competition. And as things get cooled down, the competition between these shifts, and so the low-density stuff wins out over the high-density things. Quite exactly how that works, I'm not sure, and chemists aren't either, that's part of the problem, but there is some sort of hints that what is like that. For example, when you get water really, really, really cold uh, to temperatures below 136 Kelvin or minus 137 degrees C, it becomes this glassy state, and there are two different kinds of this glassy state. There is one that is high density and one that is low density. And some scientists are saying that suggests that water always has these, but you can only see them when it gets really, really cold. Oh, so they haven't sort of seen this directly. You can't kind of look and see what the atoms are doing differently. But the various behaviour suggests that this could be an alternative explanation for water's weirdness. Basically, yeah, but you've also sort of hit the nail on the crux of the debate because some chemists are saying, well, surely you should be able to see this with X-ray scattering experiments and things like that. And that's proven kind of difficult. And the people who are the proponents of this two-state theory, they say this is because it's not a simple thing of there just being one bit there and one bit there. They're shifting all the time. So it's really hard to get an actual picture of it, especially when water is really, really cold. So this, this sounds like another ongoing argument to me then. Yeah, and this article that's in uh, Chemistry World also wins the best pun points this week because they say that over the last decade, the academic arguments have reached boiling point. Uh, okay, not sure about that one. Um, but yeah, two really interesting articles there. And you can get bite-sized bits of science like that and others in the Nature Briefing, which is our either daily or weekly newsletter, depending on what you subscribe to. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. That's all for now. As always, don't forget you can reach out to us on Twitter at Nature Podcast or send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. And don't forget, we'll be back on Friday with another episode of CoronaPod with some key pandemic updates from the last week. I'm Shamini Bandel. And I'm Nick Howe. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 